at our church in stories like that one. Uh, let me add my voice to that of your campus pastors as well as that video and uh, encourage you, um, if you have not in a small group, that you use the opportunity we present to you today to do that. Small groups are where the action in the Summit Church happens. Um, the Bible says that the majority of the things that God wants to do in your life, He does so through members of His body, through His local church, which means that if you're not in a small group, not only are you missing out on some great friendships, you're also missing out on a lot of what God wants to do in your life and in your family. So I want to challenge you to begin a new chapter, what will be for many of you a defining moment in your life and in your marriage and in your family, um, a defining moment where, um, where you go from being on the sidelines in a church as a spectator to becoming a part of the body of Christ and a part of the mission here. Um, you can join a small group anytime at the Summit Church, but um, on these two weekends here at the beginning of the season, we make it especially painfully easy for you to get involved in one, and so uh, I would encourage you to avail yourself of that opportunity opportunity. Um, some of you have heard this already, but our Chapel Hill campus launch uh, last weekend was somewhat successful. Um, we had, uh, packed out two services with uh, a little over 1,200 people at those two services, uh, which is something to be excited about. Um, it is the largest um, campus launch we have ever had. Uh, tragically, unfortunately, we had to turn away um, a couple of hundred people um, from those services, and so they have already begun this weekend their third service, uh, which they are doing at five o'clock at East Chapel Hill High School. Uh, and so, uh, Chapel Hill, we love you guys and uh, are grateful for you, and really all of our campuses, uh, North Raleigh, um, Cary, West Club, North Durham, Summit in Espanol, uh, Briar Creek North and, and South. Last weekend, we had just at 8,000 people that were at one of our campuses here across the Triangle. Um, and so uh, we are one church that meets in many different locations, um, but, uh, but God has, is, is working and God is, is, is graciously doing things among us. In fact, I would love for us right now, if we could, at all of our campuses and all of our locations, if we could all stand together uh, as one congregation, everybody here, um, if you would stand up, because there is something I want us to stand together um, for. This weekend is significant. Uh, for our society for a couple of reasons. And so I want us to pause as a congregation and guests, of course, but um, I want us to pause and to remember both of them. The first is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which is, of course, Monday. And we remember the incredible significance that this holiday um, has in our society and moving us toward a more just and, and free society. And as a congregation, we, um, we reflect on that, we rejoice in it, and, uh, and we remember it. The other is that this is National Right to Life Sunday. This weekend marks the 40th anniversary of what was a truly disastrous Supreme Court case in 1973. Um, January 22, 1973, Roe versus Wade. Since that date in 1973, more than 50 million innocent children have been, have been killed. And I want to give you just a moment to reflect on that number, 50 million. That is more than eight times the number that died in the Holocaust. And on this weekend, we mourn that tragedy in our country. Me and some of our pastors have reflected about this on my blog, jdgreer.com, which I would encourage you to read. Um, as a church, we rarely get caught up in politics, and we are not trying to get caught up in politics in this one either. But let me just suffice it to say that I agree with Randy Alcorn that to endorse or even to be neutral about killing innocent children created in God's image is absolutely unthinkable. And so I want us on this day as a congregation to reflect on, to mourn, and to pray for our community in this. We don't do so as a judge. And we do so as people who are broken, who are experiencing God's grace and healing. We know that there are many here in our number who have been on both sides of this abortion issue. Now, some who have gone through these, this, uh, the tragic process of abortion. And our word is not that, that, that we judge. Our, 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 our word is that God is a God who loves life, a God who loves life so much that he gave his son to die on a cross so that death could be removed forever for all who would receive it. 
And then his blood is cleansing and healing. His blood, his blood puts guilt to the past and his blood makes all things new. And so that is the, the testimony we want to be able to proclaim together. So I would ask on all of our campuses, if we could bow together and let's pray. Father, we stand before our community not as a judge, because everything, Father, that is wrong with our community and our culture, we see in ourselves. Father, we see prejudice in ourselves. We see a desire to be around people that are more like us. Uh, we see pride. And Father, we want to be able to proclaim to our community, not that we are perfect, but we want to be able to proclaim to our community that Father, you have shown us that there is one race of people united by a common problem, sin, with a common solution and a common Savior, Jesus. We want to be able to demonstrate that there is a unity that goes beyond skin color and cultural preference, and that unity is found in the gospel. God, make us a demonstration of the gospel and the beauty of Christ. Father, we pray for healing for our community. For those who, God, those mothers that have been through abortion, we pray that we might be able to proclaim grace and forgiveness and new life. We might be able to put on display the God of the resurrection who took our sin and our shame into himself and made all things new, who turns even the tragedy of our mistakes into triumph. Father, we pray that we might be able to be salt and light to our community, that you would use us as an instrument of your peace and your justice and your healing and your healing. That we pray for ourselves and for our community on this day in Jesus' name and all God's people at all of our campuses said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We are beginning a new series today through the book of 1 John called assured. And so if you have a copy of the Bible today, I would invite you to take it out and open it to the um, book of 1 John. Uh, if you don't know where that is, it's toward the latter half of your New Testament. Uh, not quite at the end. So if you get to Revelation or you see a series of maps, that means you've gone too far. You should go back toward the left. Um, we'll be there for the next several weeks. The book of 1 John is one of my favorites because it is all about assurance. Uh, the Apostle John, who was a close personal friend of Jesus, um, writes a lot about assurance because evidently it was a, a big deal to him. It was a theme in, in, in the books that he wrote. Um, he covers things like how you can know for sure that you are saved. Uh, if you are new to church culture, that means uh, saved means that you are at peace with God and know for certain that you are going to go to heaven when you die. Uh, John deals with how you can know that what you believe is true, how you can know that you have had a genuine experience with God, how you can be assured of God's love and his presence in your life, how you can be assured of his control in your life, how you can maintain that assurance in his love and control in the midst of, of great difficulty, great opposition, and great hardship, which we all face. Now, I will be honest with you, these are things and questions that I have struggled with for all of my life. For one, just the question of how someone could know for certain that they have been saved. I have, I've told you before that if there were a Guinness Book of World's Records for amount of times having prayed the sinner's prayer, I am almost positive I would hold that record. Um, I kid you not, I wish I were exaggerating or making this up, but by the time I graduated high school, I had probably prayed the sinner's prayer about 5,000 times. Every single time a speaker gave an invitation or a chance to pray the sinner's prayer, I took it. Um, you know, if he had you raise your hand or stand up or, or walk an aisle or throw a stick in the fire, or, I took that too because I didn't want to invalidate the prayer by not being willing to confess Jesus before men. Um, honestly, it got a little embarrassing. Um, I, I, I walked a lot of aisles in those days. I've been saved in youth camps all over the nation. Um, I think I've been saved in every denomination. I can't verify that, but I'm pretty sure. Um, I, 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 got, I got baptized. I kid you not. I got baptized four times. Four. Four. Um, and I didn't even count like one as an infant, you know, that a lot of you had. I, I'm talking about four after I'd grown up, I got baptized four times. I was a staple in our church's baptismal services. They gave me my own locker in the baptismal changing area. Uh, I mean, it really got embarrassing, but it's just not the kind of thing I wanted to be wrong about. You know, it, that's the kind of thing that you don't want to get into, into eternity and figure out, oh, I got that wrong. Right? And so I, I struggled with that for many years. Now, 
Some of you know that I have a new book coming out related to this topic called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, How to Know for Sure That You Are Saved. And you know that I would never really want to use a sermon series to promote a book that I wrote because, you know, somewhere in the Bible it says that when you self-promote, an angel loses his wings and a puppy dies in heaven. Uh, so I would never self-promote. But seriously, I, want you to do, I do, know want, you to, uh, do want you to understand this. Um, nothing, none of the proceeds of any book that we sell at the Summit Church um, uh, goes, it all goes back into the church because um, I did not write this. My wife and I did not go into this process so that we could make money off of you. Um, I wrote this because of how long uh, that I struggled with the assurance of salvation in my life and how sure I am that there are many of you that are listening to me right now who are in that same situation where you want to know that you're saved, but you just can't seem to figure it out. No matter how many times you pray the sinner's prayer, the doubts come back. You're always asking questions like, was I sorry enough? Was I, um, uh, did I repent enough? Was I surrendered enough? Did I understand enough about grace? Uh, did I understand the Trinity enough? Did I, I get the deity of Christ right? How do you know that you got it right? How do I, was I emotional enough in it? One of the, on the other hand, I know that scripture tells us that there are a lot of people who have prayed a prayer to receive Jesus and consequently they think they're going to heaven because they prayed that prayer because somebody told them that if you pray this prayer, you'd be guaranteed to go to heaven whom the Bible says are tragically mistaken. A 2011 Barna study shows that 50% of Americans say they have prayed some kind of sinner's prayer at some point in their life. 50% of Americans say they prayed a sinner's prayer, even though about two-thirds of that number have no regular presence in a church at all, and their lifestyles do not differ in any significant way from those who are outside of the Christian faith. But when these people hear that you need Jesus to be saved, they're like, oh yeah, been there, done that, prayed to prayer. Got a little, you know, little card I filled out right here in the fly leaf of my Bible. You can see my grandma's tear stains right there on it. It was super meaningful for everybody. You know, and they're immune to any talk about you need to be born again or you need to come to Christ. Matthew 7 talks about a large group of people that will say to Jesus on the last day, Lord, Lord, we're ready to go. And he's going to look at them and turn them away from heaven with the tragic words, depart from me. I never knew you. And there's going to be a large group of people, Jesus said, that are going to go into eternity assured of a salvation that they don't actually possess. And honestly, as your pastor, I wonder if some of you are in that group. Because see, he's describing church people. He's not describing people on the outside. He's describing people like the ones that are in this church. I don't want to scare anybody, but there are several things in that passage that that people often use to assure themselves that they are saved, that Jesus says are not legitimate reasons to believe that you're saved. One is a prayer that you prayed. I already mentioned that one. These people in Matthew 7 had all prayed a prayer. They're like, Lord Jesus, we received you into our hearts. Religious and ministry activity. These people in, in, in Matthew 7 were very active in their churches. They'd gone on mission trips. They volunteered at the church. In fact, a lot of them were in the prayer ministry at their church. Yeah, that's usually your cream of the crop in the prayer ministry. It says these people had um, cast out demons. And when you're part of the squad at your church that cast out demons, I mean, that's varsity. And that's as big as it gets when you're like, hey, so-and-so's got a demon. Send over that person to go pray for him. These are people that were in the front lines of ministry, yet they were not really born again. Sometimes people use the fact that they're moral or the fact that they feel guilty about their sin as a, a proof that they're saved. These people in Matthew 7 were moral. I'm sure they felt guilty about their sin. Lots of people who aren't Christians feel guilty about their sin. The whole industry of psychology is built on dealing with guilt, or at least a large part of it is. Judas felt so guilty about what he did, he went out and hung himself. He wasn't a Christian. Feeling bad about your sin doesn't prove that you are saved. And so I wrote this book to help people identify the marks of someone who is truly saved. And I want to, in this book, comfort those who are unnecessarily troubled, and if I could say it this way, trouble those who are unjustifiably comforted. I want to comfort those who are unnecessarily troubled and trouble those who are unjustifiably comforted. The gist of this book is basically this. You're not saved because you pray some magical prayer. You're saved God saves us when we repent and we believe the gospel. And you can express repentance and faith in a prayer, but it's not the prayer itself that saves. It is the repentance and, 
and, and, and faith behind the prayer that lays hold of salvation. And it is possible to repent and believe without praying the formal prayer, but it's also possible to pray the prayer without actually repenting and believing. So I encourage you in this book to understand true repentance and belief and to stop asking Jesus into your heart and start resting in the promises of the gospel. By the way, I had a a good time trying to explain this title to my nine-year-old daughter um, who asked me, she said, you know, are you, daddy, are you writing another book? And I said, yeah, what's the title? Stop asking Jesus in your heart. She looked at me at, we were at Bojangles over a biscuit and she said, why on earth would you want to tell somebody to stop doing that? So I tried to give her the elevator speech of, of, the, of the book, and when she listened, she got nodded, she goes, she goes, oh, well, that doesn't sound like a very long book. And uh, she said, how long is it, Dad? I said, oh, about, a, about 120 pages. She goes, oh, Dad, that's too long. You could have said that in about 10 pages. Um, so get the book, read the first 10 pages, and you'll be good. Um, I'm obviously not going to preach through my book for the next several weeks, but I am going to preach through the book of First John. Um, which a lot of my book is, is, ri- is written around. Because the whole point of 1 John is how you gain the assurance that you know God. How you gain the assurance that he is real. How you gain the assurance that your encounter with God is significant, that it is genuine, and that it is saving. How to be assured that he loves you and how to know that, you're walking, that you are walking with him. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, we're going to begin with the last chapter of this book because John, at the end of his book, goes back and summarizes everything he said. We're going to start with the summary. We're going to kind of pass over this book at a 30,000-foot level, and then over the next several weeks, we'll go back into some of the things that we bring up this morning. Um, this morning, we're just going to answer two questions. The first question is, does God really want us to know for sure that we are saved? Does God even want us to know? You see, there's a lot of people who don't think that God wants us to know, because they think that that's how God motivates us to stay in line is by, you know, threatening hell if we disobey and, and promising heaven if we obey. You know, if you lose that threat, then people will act however they want. Um, uh, you know, it's uh, like, like somebody that gets job security and knows they can't be fired, and they're like, oh, well, you know, I'll, just, I'll take another sick day. Who cares? I won't fill out those TPS reports. I don't care. I'm not really worried about it. Right? Somebody gets job security, they get lazy in their job. So people think, well, God doesn't want people to know for sure that they're going to heaven because then they'll get morally lazy. All right? So does God even want us to know? That's the first question we'll look at. The second question we'll look at is if he does want us to know, how do we know? All right? So let's look at those one at a time. Number one, how, or excuse me, number one, does God even want us to know for sure that we are saved? Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may, what's the next word, church? Okay. Seriously, it's on the screen. All of you can read this. Um, I write these things to you, believe in the name of the God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So there's your answer. Yes, he wants you to know. He wants you to know for two reasons. The first reason is he loves you. And when you love somebody, you want them to know that, uh, that, they, that you love them. If you love somebody, you want them to feel secure in how you feel about them. So that's why God wants us to know, because he loves us. The second reason is that the only way we will ever really develop love for God in our hearts is when we are sure of his love for us. You see, real love only grows in the soil of security. When you make someone behave by threatening them, you might coerce their behavior, but you will never captivate their heart. And God is not after simply coercing your behavior to a, a set of standards, God is trying to win your heart. And the only way that your heart will ever be won is when you are assured of the love of God for you. Love for God in you grows from the assurance of the love of God for you. All right? So that's, the answer is yes. Uh, the Apostle John, um, in one of his other books that he wrote, the Gospel of John, records a couple of analogies that Jesus used with his disciples before he left them on earth that communicated assurance to them in the tenderest of terms. And he says, this is, this is why, this is how I want you to feel as I'm leaving. The first one, I'll just, I'll just cover a couple of them. The first one is, um, he said that we, that his disciples were his beloved children. John 14, 18, Jesus said to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. A good father does not want his kids wondering whether or not he loves them or whether or not he's committed to them, right? Any of you fathers like that, you want your kids in doubt about your love and your commitment to them? 
you know, when I leave to go on a business trip, I don't, you know, which I do from time to time, I don't look at my kids and say, hey, daddy's coming back and he's going to bring you a surprise because he loves you. Or maybe he's not coming back because maybe he's not your daddy at all. Maybe his real family lives somewhere else and this is all a big illusion. And maybe you're just going to have to sit around and think about that while I'm gone and let that compel you to become better children. <laughs> you think that would work? That might produce a little fear-based obedience, but it's never going to produce love and loyalty. And by the way, it's not long before fear-based obedience turns into father-loathing rebellion. And God doesn't want merely fear-based obedience. What God wants is love in his children's heart for them, and that only grows in the soil of security. The other analogy he used in that same conversation was he told his disciples, he said, you're like my betrothed bride. No, no man that, that is married or engaged wants his bride to, to feel like, like he's not really committed to her. Here's what Jesus said, John 14, one through three. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'm gonna come back and I will take you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Um, that language he's using there is wedding kind of language. If a man loves a woman, he wants to give her the assurance that he loves her. When my wife and I were engaged, got engaged, she um, was a student at the University of Virginia and I was in seminary here in North Carolina. And one of the hardest things we had to do every single, after every weekend, we always were together on the weekends, is we would leave and she would have to go back to Charlottesville to go to classes and I would go to my seminary classes in North Carolina. And the last thing that I would have wanted during that week is that what I, it would have been for her to have sat around and wondered about my commitment to her and about my love for her. Why? One, because I loved her and I wanted her to feel safe. But two, I knew that if she was not sure of my commitment to her, she might be open to the advances of another suitor. Right? So, I wanted, so, so, so every weekend I would tell her, hey, we're going to be apart, but I'm coming back and I'm going to marry you. And I put a big old fat rock on her left hand to remind her of my commitment to her because she and I both knew if I didn't come back, she was keeping that rock, right? <laughs> my assurance to her not only made her feel safe, it also gave her strength. It gave her strength to resist the advances of other guys because she knew she had the awesome sauce in me already, right? <laughs> And it was the strength of her assurance with me that gave her the ability to say no to the, the advances of somebody else. That's how God works with us, is he knows we will never have the ability to say no to the world until we are assured of his love for us. You see, that's the gospel secret. Listen, the gospel secret, this is, I'm telling you, if you ever get your mind around this, this will change your life. The gospel secret is that assurance in the gospel has a greater power to produce virtue and love in our hearts than the threats of the law could ever do. The threats of the law can coerce your behavior, but it cannot ever captivate your hearts and emotions and your affections. The established church of Martin Luther's day, Martin Luther the reformer, they believed that people would only obey when they were threatened with harsh consequences for rebellion. Martin Luther, in his typical colorful way, this is what, what the whole Reformation was birthed out of, is he decried that as the damnable doctrine of doubt. The idea that you would coerce somebody's behavior through a threat of punishment or hell, he said, yes, that will produce a little fear-based obedience, but underneath that thin veneer of obedience is going to rush a river of self-interest and pride and fear and resentment. And he said, God is not after that kind of obedience. God's after a new kind of obedience, an obedience that grows out of love for him. And that love doesn't grow in response to threats. That love grows in response to love. And when he said that, by the way, he's just quoting 1 John, 1 John 4, 18, perfect love cast out fear. We love him, 1 John 4, 19. We love him, why? Why? Because he threatens us if we don't? Because he's the best path to earthly blessing? No, we love him because... He first loved us. It is assurance of the love of God for you that produces love for God in you. That's the gospel secret, is that God's grace is able to do in your heart what the law could never do. So what you need is not more sermons and more laws and more self-discipline. What you need is a radical experience with the grace and the acceptance and the love of God that was finished for you in Christ. By the way, there's a really good example of this out right now in one of the most popular movies that's out right now, Les Mis. How many of you have seen Les Mis? Put your hands up. All right, how many of you cried through parts of Les Mis? Keep your hands up right now and testify, all right? Okay. 
Um, if you haven't seen the movie, there's a scene right at the beginning, and I'm not going to ruin the movie for you because this is right at the beginning. This is before um, the Wolverine meets the Catwoman and before um, they run away from the Gladiator and before they meet Borat. Before all of that, um, this happens, okay? Um, there is uh, uh, the Jean Valjean, who's the main character in uh, the movie, is a very hardened criminal. And for 20 years, he has resisted um, the threats of his captors. They have done nothing to change his heart. They have only hardened him in his hatred. Um, he gets out of prison and he commits, um, uh, uh, he, he robs a, a priest. And the priest, um, they catch him and the priest has the ability to send Jean Valjean back to prison for the rest of his life. But instead of giving him justice, the priest forgives him and gives him it's just this incredible um, act of grace. Victor Hugo, in, the, um, in that novel, Les Mis, if you, you've ever read it, there is a section where he begins to describe what's going on in Jean Valjean's heart, which you just can't capture in a movie or even in a musical. Um, Victor Hugo says that for 20 years, for 20 years, Valjean had been able to resist, resist the threats of the law. Let me actually read his words to you. Um, he says, he says this, quote, Valjean dimly felt that this priest's pardon was the hardest assault of all, the most formidable attack he had ever sustained, that a gigantic and decisive struggle had begun in his heart between his own wrongs and the grace and goodness of this man. All Hugo is doing is re-presenting the gospel to you. And he is saying that the gospel is able to do what the law could never do. And you can resist the law, but it is the goodness of God and the grace of God that actually changes the heart to make it love righteousness, to make it love God. God's goodness and his grace, Romans 2, 4 says, is what leads you to repentance. That's why if you struggle with sin, I'm telling you, the answer is not more laws. The answer is not more self-discipline. The answer is a radical experience with the love and the assurance that the gospel gives you. Whenever I talk about this, the example in the Bible I almost always go to is that story where Jesus encounters the woman that's caught in adultery. The basic gist of the story is this. The woman is caught in the very act of adultery, so she's drug out to the city square so they can stone her. But as they got the stones in their hands to kill her, they look at Jesus because they're trying to trap him, and they say, hey, what do you think we should do with this woman? And Jesus kneels down. He starts scribbling in the dirt. After a few minutes, he looks up and says, let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. Well, they all look at each other awkwardly, drop the rocks, and go home. And it's just the woman and Jesus. And the woman looks at Jesus and says, are you going to stone me now? And he says, do I look like I'm going to stone you? And uh, then he looks at the woman and he makes the most profound statement. Here's what he says. And pay very close attention to it. Woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What is profound about his statement to her, listen, is not really what he said. It's the order in which he said it. Because I almost always want to reverse those two phrases. Don't you? I always want to say, if you go and sin no more, then I won't condemn you. But Jesus put acceptance before change because he knew she would never have the power to change until she was assured of his acceptance. Because the reason she had gone into the arms of adulterers is because of something in her soul that she craved. She craved love. She craved security. And she had sought for that in the arms of adultery. And Jesus knew she would never have the power to break that craving until she was assured of the love of a father who was better and more secure than the love that she had sought in the arms of some guy, which she'd been doing since the time that she was in middle school. The way we say it here is this, God's power, excuse me, God's acceptance is the power that liberates you from sin. It is not the reward for you having liberated yourself. God's acceptance, the gospel is the power that liberates you from sin. It is not the reward for you having liberated yourself. It is the security of the gospel from which everything else spiritually grows in your life. Which means if you don't have the assurance of salvation, your spiritual life is never going to take off. Because everything grows out of the assurance of the love of God for you. So does God want you to have absolute confidence and assurance that you are saved? Profoundly, yes. Because nothing in your life spiritually will take off until you have that. All right? So that's, I think we've answered that question. Does God want us to know? Yes, he does. Number two, how can we know then that we are saved? How can we know that we're saved? John, in the next few verses, is going to identify two elements that are going to be signs to you that you are saved. 
Now, we're going to come back to these. So again, I'm going to cover them quickly, and then we'll come back to them. But I want to introduce both of them to you today. Verse 13 again, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Here is the first one, letter A, if you're taking notes. You've placed your hopes for heaven entirely on Jesus. How do you know for sure that you were saved? You've placed your hopes for heaven entirely on Jesus. When John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, believe in the name of the Son of God means you rest in the account of. Now, think of it this way. If a really wealthy person invited you to go on a weekend resort vacation that you could never afford on your own, but you were going to go as their guest, when you were checking into the hotel and the person behind the desk asked you how you were going to pay for that weekend, right? You would look back at them and knowing that you could never put this on your credit card because your credit card doesn't have that high of a limit. You would look back at them and you would say, I am under the name of, and you would put the name of that wealthy person. And what you are saying to them is, do not charge this weekend to my credit card because I'm under the name of this wealthy person, put it on their account. When John says you believe in the name of the Son of God, what that means is when you think about how you are going to purchase entry into heaven, you are not making a withdrawal from your own moral bank account. You are depending on the account of Jesus Christ, which was given to you as a gift. That's what he means, is that you have put all hopes for entering heaven, not on how moral you are, not on the amount in your moral bank account, but you're now depending on the work of another. You're depending on what Jesus did in your place, that he lived the life you should have lived, then died the death you were condemned to die, and gave it to you as a gift. And so you rest your hopes for heaven on his finished work. You see, you see the gospel by its, by its very nature produces assurance. Because you're no longer depending on how well you've done or you're no longer depending on on how well you've performed to earn your way to heaven, you are resting in his finished work. Which means that I'm as sure of heaven as Jesus is. Because he is my salvation. So see, that means when I, listen, when I ask somebody, and I ask people this a lot, are you a Christian? The number one answer that I get back from people when I ask them that is something like this. Well, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. I'm going back to church now. I'm feeling pretty good about it. When a person makes a statement to me like that, I know for absolute certain they have no concept at all of what a Christian actually is. Because they're still thinking that Christian is a title that you live up to. And that how well you live up to the title is whether or not you can claim the title. But see, what a Christian is, is someone who understands that that title is not given by something that you earn. That title was earned for you by Jesus Christ and given it to you as a gift. So you ask me, are you a Christian? My answer is yes. Not because I feel like I live up to the title, but because Jesus died in my place. He substituted for me and I have taken him as my savior. Therefore, I take that title because of his finished work, not because of how well I've done. You you see what I mean? The gospel by its very nature produces assurance. Uh, The um, the Old Testament had a great example of this I've used with you before. Um, But it's uh, when when a Jewish family brought a sacrifice um, and they, they got ready to slaughter the sacrifice as they were slaughtering the lamb, the husband, the, the, the father of the family would reach out his hand and he would put it on the head of the lamb as the lamb was slaughtered. And what he was showing was that the payment for his family's sin was being transferred onto this lamb. To be converted to Jesus Christ means simply that you have laid your hand on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. That that, he is your sin bearer. That he is what you are depending on as your entry into heaven. So my question for you right now is very simply this. Is your hand resting on the head of Jesus Christ right now as your sin bearer and as your hope for heaven? Because if so, then if never before, then you are saved right at the moment that you do that. By the way, it does not matter what you said when you first placed your hand there, right? It just matters that you placed your hand there. That's all that matters. The analogy I've used with you before is the analogy of a chair. And I was actually going to have an empty chair up here on stage, but then I thought that you might think I was going into a political diatribe, so I thought better of that. Um, but I said, let this chair right here represent, well, let's just talk about the chair. Um, every one of you right now is in one of two relationships to the chair that you're sitting on. 
Um, either you're standing beside the chair with the weight of your body on your own legs and feet, or you have transferred the weight of your body off of your legs onto the chair, right? Every one of you is in one of two relationships to Jesus Christ. Either you are standing as your own authority, or you have sat down in submission to his authority. You are either standing in the hopes that you can be good enough to earn your way to heaven, or you have sat down in his finished work and trusted in that as your way to heaven. So you can only be in one of two relationships. By the way, does it matter if you're not sitting down? Does it matter what kind of speech you made to the chair before you sat down? Oh, chair, oh, great wooden chair. Thou art a lovely chair, the wood looks strong. You are a pretty version of black, and I am very confident that you will hold the weight of my 200-pound frame as I transfer my, I could make the most eloquent prayer, and if the chair could hear, maybe it would be impressed, but if I never sit down, the prayer or the, the, the speech doesn't do anything. The point is not what you say as you're sitting down. The point is, are you sitting down? Right? Does that make sense? Um, or, or, or how about this? How do you know you made the decision to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? How you, how you how do you know? Well, how do you know you made the decision to sit down in that chair you're sitting down in? Is it because you remember consciously making the decision? Do, do you know that you're sitting in that chair right now because you were like, oh, I remember walking in, and I remember looking at that chair and thinking, oh, that looks like a sturdy chair. It looks like it's got a polycarbonate uh, frame, and it looks like it's reputable. It looks like it will hold up the weight of my body. And so right now, I covenant with my legs to sit down in that chair, and I'm telling several of my friends for accountability, and I'm going to sign a card on it. And that's why I know that I'm sitting down in the chair, because I remember making the decision. <laughs> no, for most of you, that decision was subconscious, was it not? Right. But how do you know you made the decision? Not because you remember the decision, but because you're sitting there now. How do you know you made the decision to trust Christ? Is it because you remember the emotion, you remember the prayer that you prayed? No. It's because right now the posture of your life is one of repentance and faith. That's how you know you made the decision. Listen, if you are right now, in a pot, if you are right now surrendered to Christ as Lord and right now trusting in his finished work as your Savior, then if never before, you're saved right at this moment. You say, oh, but, 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 but I didn't pray the formal prayer. Who cares? Who cares? It's not the prayer, it's the posture, right? At the same token, you might have a crystal clear memory of when you prayed the prayer and the emotions that went through it, but if right now you are not surrendered to Christ as Lord and you're not trusting in his finished work, then I don't care what prayer you prayed, it was the wrong one. Because it's not a prayer that gives you assurance, it's your posture. In fact, here's how I would say that. Assurance doesn't come from a past memory. Assurance comes from a present posture. Assurance doesn't come from a past memory. Assurance comes from a present posture. And we got a lot of Christians who are, are looking back to a past event for their assurance of salvation, two years, five years, 30 years, when what you ought to be doing is looking at your present posture. If right now you are surrendered to Christ as Lord and trusting in him as your savior, then right now you are saved because it is the posture of repentance and faith that saves, not some magical prayer. All right, so that's the first way John gives you. Here's the second way, verse 18. I'll do this really quickly. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Here's letter B. Here's how, he says how you know that you are saved. You have a new nature. You have a new nature. If you've been born of God or born again, you have been given a new nature with new desires. So you don't keep on sinning, not because you're scared of threats, but because you got a new nature with new desires. Here's kind of an earthy way I've described it to you before, and I will. this is the junior high youth pastor and me coming back out. But I've compared it before to like, imagine down here in front, right below the stage, there was a big old pile of vomit where somebody had thrown up. Big, warm, steaming pile of vomit. There is not one, not one of you in here that would need for me to stand up here and be like, you better not come down here and look up this vomit. I'm serious. That is a rule of the Summit Church, no licking up other people's vomit. And I'm going to put two big old guys down here on either side of this pile of vomit. And if any of you try to come up and lick the vomit when I'm not looking, they're going to stop. Not one of you needs to hear that, right? Unless, of course, you are a dog. And if you are a dog, then we do need to make rules for you. Because you're like, oh, warm vomit, half-digested hot dog, bonus. You know, and you, you'd be down there licking it up. God, listen, God does, not, God does not change us 
by increasing the threats of consequences for what happens if we sin. God changes us by giving us a new nature and a new desire that desires different things. Which means that one of the signs that God is in you is that the old things that you used to love, things like hatefulness, things like pride, things like racism, things like um, uh, self-glorification, dishonesty, they don't just become wrong to you, they become disgusting to you. And while you still struggle with them because you got some of that old nature in you, you have a whole new appetite and a whole new desire for different things. And when you do start to go back toward those sins, which we all do, by the way, because we still have that nature, he protects you, he renews you. There's a play on words that takes place in um, verse 18, look at it again. If you've been born of God, then the one who was born of God, that is Jesus. In other words, if you've been born of God, then the one, the one who was virgin born of God, he protects you. Which means that when you do start to go back, he brings you back. All of us backslide into our old ways. But the sign of someone who is truly saved is that they always come back. That is the sign of somebody who is truly saved. They always come back. We all fall. But if you're saved, he keeps bringing you back. For, for years I've used as an example of this, um, Jesus' teaching on the parable, uh, the, the parable of the, the soils. He said, he said the word of God is like a seed that gets thrown into different kinds of soil. And you know, I've described to you, there's a kind of soil that's shallow and immediately the seed springs up quickly into a really cool looking little plant that looks really healthy, but it has no roots. And so when the sun comes out or the weeds grow up, the plant dies. And the question I always ask you is this, those plants that spring up so quickly and then fade away, do they represent saved people or unsaved people? The answer is they represent unsaved people who for a while look like they are saved people, which means they pray the prayer. They get emotional when they pray the prayer. They get baptized. They probably go on a mission trip. They join a small group. But the proof that their faith was not saving is that it fades over time and they don't come back to it. You see, the proof of saving faith is not the intensity of emotion at the beginning. The proof of saving faith is that it endures for a lifetime. And that's what John's saying. They don't keep on sinning. They, don't keep, they have a fundamentally different relationship to sin. Whoever says, I know him, John says, 1 John 2, 4, but does not keep his commandments is a, a what, church? Liar. That's a, that, that's a harsh word. If you say that you know God and you practice sin, and by the way, I don't mean struggle with sin, because we all do that, but I mean you engage in a lifestyle of sin, willfully and defiantly, you are a liar. If you fill up your weekend with the things that put Jesus on the cross, then walking in here, checking in with God, singing a few God songs, does not deceive God into thinking that your heart belongs to him. The simple fact is you can't love God and also love the things that grieve him. You cannot love God and be neutral toward the things that he hates. You can't have a mouth that sings praises to him and a life that openly crucifies him. It doesn't matter what your mouth says on Sunday morning. It matters what your life says on Monday through Saturday. College students, what'd you do last night? What are your conversations like? Not just college students, everybody. What do you fill your mind with? I, mean, I, I know the church I pastor. Because I'm telling you, it's not being in here singing God's songs that convinces him that you love him. It is whether or not you obey his commandments on Monday through Saturday that is a better determiner of whether or not you have love for him. It's not your mouth that confesses your love. It is your life that confesses your love. By the way, this explains what he means, what John means in the previous two verses, verses 16 to 17, that sometimes confuse people. This is kind of like to take a drink of water from the fire hydrant section of the sermon. So hang on. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. And you're like, what? Okay, there are two kinds of sins. Watch this, this is very important. Two kinds of sins. There's the kind of sins that we all struggle with. Sometimes they're bad sins, but we, just, we struggle with them. And when we see one another fall into a sin like that, we pray for them that God would bring them back to their senses, or if you will, bring them back to life. But then there is another kind of sin, and don't think of it so much as a sinful action, but as a sinful resolve. That is when somebody so hardens their heart toward God, 
and they defiantly walk the other direction that God finally says, fine. And he just says, you have it your way. And he says, that's a sin that leads to death, which means one of two things. Either they're a believer and God kills them, which John says happens. A believer so hardens their heart that God says, that's it, boom, and he kills them. Or it means that they were never really saved and they just looked like it for a while. And so their practice of continually sinning shows that they're not saved and they're gonna end up in eternal death. That's what that means. By the way, some of you, when I say that, you're like, well, how do I know if I've committed that sin? If you're worried about it, you haven't. Because one of the things that happens is your heart gets so hard that you quit desiring to repent at all, ever. As long as you ever want to repent, God will always receive you. John 6, 37, he that comes to me, I will in no wise for any reasons under any circumstances ever cast out. So you're like, well, maybe the reason I don't want to repent is because I've so hardened my heart. Listen, as long as you got breath in your body and as long as there is a desire to repent, the fact that you're asking that question shows me God's spirit is at work within you. You better repent today because you might lose the desire altogether at some point. And oh, let me add one more thing here. It's never wise to diagnose somebody else's death as to what sin they committed that put them there. I mean, just, you're not sitting in a funeral going, oh, I know why that happened. All right. That's just not something that you and I know. But what he's, what he's saying, listen, it's so important. He is saying that when you are born again, you have a fundamentally different relationship to sin. Yes, you struggle. Yes, you fall often. But God always picks you up and puts you back on his direct, his, he puts you back in that posture of repentance and faith. I, I love how Proverbs says this. All right, real quick. Okay, this is one of my favorite verses. Hang with me. Proverbs 24, 16. Listen, the righteous man falls seven times and gets back up again. Seven times. Seven in the Bible is the number of completion. So when a dude falls seven times, that's like saying that all he does is fall. He's a fallen machine. Imagine if you were walking behind somebody in the mall who fell seven times. <laughs> what do you conclude about that part? Right, so the first time they fall, you kind of laugh. <laughs> they fell, right? <laughs> Second time they fall, you get out your camera and you film it and send it to your friends. Third time they fall, you put it on YouTube. They fall four, five, six, seven times, you feel bad for putting it on YouTube because that person's obviously got a problem and you just made fun of them, right? They got a problem. The righteous man falls seven times, which means that his life is characterized by falling. He doesn't show his righteousness by never falling. He shows his righteousness by what he does when he falls, is that he always gets back up. He always reassumes the posture of repentance and faith. Conversion is not sinless perfection. Conversion is a new direction. What you believe about the gospel is not shown by never falling. It's shown by what you do when you fall. And what John says, that's all he's saying, the one who's been born of God does not go on sinning. If the one who says he's born of God does not keep God's commandments, is not growing in his love for what God loves, if he is not continually being renewed in this posture of repentance and faith, then he is a liar. When I was in college, I had a couple of friends who lived off campus. College men are not typically known as paragons of cleanliness, but um, these guys took domestic filth to a whole new level. Um, they, uh, they, had a, uh, they, they never did their dishes. They never changed the sheets on their bed. Um, whenever they needed a new um, dish, they would just get one out of the pile uh, that was dirty and rinse it off and use that one. And they would eat breakfast. It's like I go over there in the mornings and, and their cereal bowls from three hours earlier were still sitting there on the table you know, with the milk curdling inside it. They had a cat in their house that for whatever reason didn't get the litter box concept. So you would walk in their house. Don't even get me started on their bathroom, by the way. Uh, I mean, you know, just put it this way. If you had gone in their bathroom, you and your children would have been defiled for 10 generations. Um, you walk in their house and you were, you were greeted by a concoction of fragrances that eye has not seen nor has ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man. Um, you would walk, and it was just, it was overpowering. Um, well, one of the guy's mother used to visit them about every two months. Two months she'd come. And the first thing that she did when she got there on Thursday was the day she usually came, is she would clean the place from top to bottom, which usually involved um, napalm and a blowtorch. <laughs> but when she did it, it would smell like lemons and Ajax. So if I walked in there on a Sunday afternoon and was greeted by the usual concoction of foul fragrances, and my friend comes up to me and says, hey, guess what, my mom got here on Thursday, 
I would look back at him and say, you are a liar. Because if your mom was here, it wouldn't smell like mildew and cat fecal matter. It would smell like lemons and Ajax. What John is saying to you is, if Jesus is in your heart and your life, you're not perfect, but you got a fundamentally different attitude towards sin. That you are changing, you're beginning to love what God loves, and no matter how often you fall, he always, he protects you, he picks you back up, and he sets you down in the posture of repentance and faith. So here's my question for you. What posture are you in right now in relation to Jesus, knowing that you could only be in one of two? Are you standing in your own authority? Or are you seated in submission to him? Call me one or two. Are you standing in the hopes that you're going to be good enough to earn heaven because you go to church enough and you're a nice person? Or are you seated? Are you seated? In trust in his finished work. Because if you've never sat down, I don't care what prayer you prayed, you're not saved. And if you are sitting down, I don't care if you prayed a prayer or not because it's not the prayer that saves, it's the posture of repentance and faith. And maybe for the first time, some of you get it right now. And right now, you, your life needs to just take that posture. You need to reach out your hand of faith and put it on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, my Savior, my sin bearer, I trust in what he did to get me to heaven. Why don't you bow your heads with me, if you would, at all of our campuses. If you have never done that, I would invite you to do it right now. Maybe for some of you, it just made sense for the first time. And right now, you need to, metaphorically speaking, sit down and surrender to him. You need to sit down in the promise that he has done everything necessary to save you, and you need to take that as your own. You need to lay your hand on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can use words when you do it in your heart. You can say, Jesus, right now, I'm surrendering to you. Right now, I'm trusting in what you finished as my salvation. Say that to him from your heart, knowing that it's not the words, it's the repentance and belief. Sit down right now. Jesus, I surrender. I sit down. Jesus, I rest in your finished work and I rest in your promise that you've done all that's necessary to save me. Maybe you're not there yet. And you just need to resolve that you're going to come back for the next five or six weeks while we go through this book so that you can learn to gain this assurance. And that's what you need to resolve right now. Right now, I resolve. I'm going to be back here for the next five or six weeks, and I'm going to learn what this is all about. Holy Spirit, I know that you are working. I sense it. I pray that all of our campuses all over the triangle, God, faith would be springing up people would be finding assurance of their salvation. Everything would be becoming new. I pray and ask that God. And I ask that if people are here, that you would give them the resolve to come back, give them the courage to tell one of our pastors or the friend that invited them about this struggle in their heart, about what's going on, about the decision that they made today to join a small group, to begin this incredible life of discipleship. I pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen.